Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim In the name of Allah most gracious most merciful Man know thyself by Maulana Wahiduddin Khan If a group of people were asked what the most important issue for mankind was today different people would have different answers Some would say the spread of nuclear weapons, some the population explosion, while others might say that the production and distribution of wealth were of paramount importance. Such diversity of opinion shows that people in general do not properly recognize that they themselves what they themselves are. Such diversity of opinion shows that people in general do not properly recognize what they themselves are if they did they would all agree that the most critical issue facing mankind was man's disregard of his real nature and his persistence in ignoring the in- inescapable fact that one day he must die and be called to account before his maker if they did they would all agree that the most critical issue facing mankind was man's regard of his real nature and his persistence in ignoring the inescapable fact that one day he must die and be called to account by his maker if we were to become aware of the reality of existence it would be to the afterlife rather than to this world that we would direct our attention Today most people do believe in God and in the afterworld. It is not as if they deny these things, but their actions bear no relation to their belief. In a practice, all that people are concerned about is worldly success. If our research laboratories were one day to declare that the earth's gravitational pull had ceased to exist, and that the planet was being pulled towards the sun at a speed of 6000 miles per hour then panic would strike the whole world for such news would imply that within a few weeks all life would be obliterated from the face of the earth this globe however is perpetually facing a peril much greater than this yet no one feels the need to become anxious about it What is this peril? What is this peril? It is the peril of the last day which has been destined for the world since the creation of the universe and towards which we are careering at a reckless speed. As an article of faith, most of us accept this reality, but there are a few indeed who actually feel compelled to give it serious thought. If you stand in a busy shop center during the evening rush hour and observe what people are hurrying towards you will realize what today's human being has chosen as his fundamental issue why do you think there is an endless stream of traffic in the streets why has the merchant decorated his his shop why has the merchant decorated his shop where are the crowds of people coming from 
and going to. What is the main topic of people's conversation and the true purpose of their meetings with one another? What interests them most? To what use are their finest talents and resources put? What has this exuberant person obtained that has thrilled him so? And what has that dejected face been deprived of that it has so stricken a look? What have people taken with them from their homes and what do they intend to return with? If you can answer these questions, judging from the nature of people's preoccupations, this, the sounds they emit, the sounds they emit, their agitation and uh, quiescence, their agitation and quiescence, you will also be able to deduce exactly what it is that mankind has chosen to base his life on and what he is endeavoring to achieve. It is plain for all to see from the constant procession of people to and from the towns and their continuous comings and goings on the crowded streets that today's human being is simply running after the satisfaction of his own desires. It is the world rather than the afterlife which he is eager to obtain. His happiness hinges on the fulfillment of his worldly worldly ambitions, while his grief stems from the fact that this seemingly eludes him. The everyday concept of success is the immediate acquisition of commodities and the enjoyment of leisure and popular acclaim, while failure to them means to be deprived of these things while failure to them means to be deprived of these things. This is what the whole of humanity is chasing after. No one cares about tomorrow. Everyone becomes frantic about getting his share now, today, this very moment, or this very minute. This state of affairs is prevalent not only in our big cities, but even in the tiniest human settlements. Wherever one goes, people seem to be similarly obsessed. Male and female, rich and poor, old and young, urban and rustic, even the religious and irreligious, all are running in this same direction. What man is most preoccupied with is grabbing whatever he can in this world. This is what he considers to be worthwhile, and this is what he spends his precious time and talents on. This is what obsesses him night and day. No sacrifice. No sacrifice, however dubious in character, is too great if it brings him these things. Again, no sacrifice, however dubious in character, is too great if it brings him these things. He is, even ready, he is even ready to sacrifice his faith and his conscience for them at, at, the altar, at the altar of worldly gain. His struggle is for worldly ends alone, and he cares not what this struggle entails. No compromise is to base for him. 
No compromise is too base for him. Every success gained in this way, however, is trivial and mundane and will be of no avail in the afterlife. He who is concerned with consolidation of his worldly position at the expense of the afterlife is like the young man who does not care to save up for his old age. Eventually the time comes when his limbs fail him and he becomes unfit for further toil. Suddenly he realizes his predicament. He is without food, clothes and shelter. He is no longer able to provide for himself. In rags, he lies down in despair in the shade of some wall where the dogs bark at him and boys throw stones. Though we witness with our own eyes the plight of those who have not saved up for the afterlife, we are still not galvanized into action. All of us are too concerned with the consolidation of our present positions no one gives a thought of tomorrow. When the air raid siren sounds in wartime and proclaims in its calling, in its chilling wail, again, when the air raid siren sounds in wartime and proclaims in its chilling wail, squadrons of enemy bombers, squadrons of enemy bombers are approaching to blast the city to eternity. To the air raid shelters at once. Everyone immediately takes the quickest, uh, quickest route to the shelters, and in an instant, the busiest of streets are deserted. Anyone who does not react in this manner is considered idiotic, mentally deranged. The same applies to any material hazard, no matter what it may be. There is another danger, however even more terrible and inevitable concerning which the Lord of the Worlds has given us due to warning, proclaiming his imperatives through his prophets. Mankind. Mankind, worship me, fulfill your obligations to one another and live in accordance with my will. I will punish those who fail to do this in a way that cannot be imagined. They will writhe forever in a torment, from which they will never be able to free themselves. Every ear has heard this declaration and every tongue acknowledges it in one form or another, in one form or the other. But the general attitude is to treat it as a matter of no consequence. In order to avail themselves of worldly advantages, people perpetrate every form of misdemeanor. In this way, Life's caravan is proceeding heedlessly towards a point of no return. People start in response to the siren screeching out from the military HQ headquarter, but no importance is attached to the danger signal which the Lord of the Universe sounds for mankind. Far from hastening at the sound of it, no one even alters his pace. What can the reason for this anomalous state of affairs be? It is simply that the danger about which the military headquarters siren warns us is of this world. Everyone perceives this 
and knows that its effect will be immediately felt. The danger which God has cautioned us about, on the other hand, will be felt in the afterlife. The wall of death stands between us and its realization. The eyes of the world cannot penetrate it. The wall of death stands between us and its realization. The eyes of the world cannot penetrate it. Neither its planes, or neither its planes, nor its bombs, nor its engulfing fire and smoke are apparent to us. Although people immediately respond to the air raid siren, they remain unaffected and dispassionate on hearing of the calamity of which God has given us ample warning. The news does not impress upon them the absolute certainty of their doom, and this being so, they do not feel spurred on to atone for their sins or to begin leading to begin leading righteous lives. God most sublime, however, has given us not only our two eyes with which to perceive the external world, but also a third eye which can scan the invisible realities which lie beyond the horizons of perception. This eye is that of the intellect. People remain in a state of doubt because they do not use this third eye. They reckon that reality is what they see before their eye, before their uh, own two eyes. They reckon that reality is what they see before their own two eyes, whereas if they were to ponder over the matter, they would become even more certain about what remains unseen than about what is visible. What is the one reality that everybody acknowledges? Death must be the unanimous answer to this question. Death is a reality to which everyone, big or small, has to reconcile himself. Everyone realizes that death can overtake one at any time, but whenever the thought of death occurs to people, all that concerns them is, what will happen to my children after I die? Before death, thoughts of life dominate their minds, but if they project their thoughts beyond death, all that claims all that claims their attention is of a domestic nature. Most of their lives is spent safeguarding their children's future, but no efforts are made to ensure themselves for the life that lies ahead. It seems from their attitude as if only their children will survive them and that they themselves will be no will be non existent and so have nothing to prepare for. People behave as if they are totally unaware of the fact that there is a life after death, whereas in fact the real life only commences after death. If they only realize that when they enter the grave, rather than being buried, they were being ushered into another world, they would be more worried about themselves than about their children's future. Again, if they only realize that when they enter the grave, rather than being buried, they were being ushered into another world. They would be more worried about themselves than about their children's future. The fact is that most people, whether religiously, whether religiously or uh, agnostically inclined, are not convinced that after death they do not cease to exist. 
but expect rather to discover a new life more consequential than the present one. Two factors cause one to have doubts about life after death. Firstly, on dying, every human being turns into dust and all traces of his body are affected. How then can be how can how then can he subsequently be revived? Secondly, the life after death is not visible to us. The word of today is an observable phenomenon, but what about the afterlife? If no one has actually seen it, how can we place implicit trust in its advent? Let us look at both these objections in turn. Life after death. When I am dead, will I then be raised up again? This question may hover on the periphery of the consciousness of even those who do not have any deep convictions of the reality of life after death, but the fact remains that very few people give any direct attention to the question of the afterlife. The plain truth that tomorrow's life is not willingly and uh, eagerly contemplated in the present world is surely an indication of conscious or subconscious doubt as to its existence. If, however, we give serious thought to this reality, it becomes easily comprehensible. God, wishing to put us to the test, has not divulged the secrets of life after death to us, but has spread his signs throughout the world, which, if pondered over, can lead us to a true realization of the essence of all things. This universe is a mirror in which we can gaze upon the image of the next world. It is common knowledge that human beings have not always existed in their present state. Man is derived from a form, a formless substance which gradually takes on the form of a human being as it grows in the mother's womb. This process continues until it uh, this process continues until in the outside world it develops into a full-fledged human being. The metamorphosis of an insensate valueless substance the, metam- the, the metamorphosis of an insensate valueless substance imperceptible, imperceptible to the naked eye into a six foot tall human being is an everyday event so why should there be any difficulty in understanding how the minute particles of our bodies after being scattered in the ground, will once again take on a human form. Every individual one sees walking around is, in fact, an accumulation of countless atoms previously dispersed in unknown dimensions throughout the earth and atmosphere. Presently, the forces of nature brought these atoms together in one meaningful sensate pattern so that we are now able to observe these same scattered atoms in the form of a human being capable of thought feeling and movement the very same process will be repeated when subsequent to our death the very same process will be repeated when subsequent to our death our particles are diffused in the air water and earth afterwards at god's command they will be reassembled and once again assume the form of a human being. 
What is so extraordinary about the reoccurrence of an event which has already happened once before? Even in the world of matter, there are indications of the practicality of a repetition of life. Every year in the rainy season, vegetation flourishes and greenery spreads in all directions. Then the summer pronounces its death sentence and the earth dries up. Where flowers bloomed, where flowers bloomed, only a barren plain can be seen. Thus a fully fledged life expires. But when the rains come again and water pours down from the sky, that very same vegetation is revived and dry land once again becomes a meadow. In this very same manner, man will be raised to life after his death. Let's look at it from another angle. Doubts occurred concerning life after death because our imagination is formulated in terms of our present physical existence. We consider the mobile or the mobile figure outwardly apparent. We consider the mobile figure outwardly apparent to us to be the essential human being and wonder how this form can be refashioned and raised up again once it has rotted away and mingled with the earth. We observe that when death strikes an inanimate and uh, animate human being and animate human being becomes silent, his motion is halted and all his faculties cease to function. Afterwards, he is buried in the ground, cremated or thrown into a river, depending on the customs of the people concerned. A few days later, the body has been reduced to tiny particles and mingled with the earth in such a way as to be undetectable to normal vision. We witness daily the extinction of live human beings in this manner and find it difficult to comprehend how a form so totally obliterated can possibly be revived. The fact is that the word man refers not to any such bodily form, but rather to the soul which inhabits the body. As far as the physical frame is concerned, we know that it is composed of tiny particles called living cells. The position of cells in our body is like that of bricks in a building. The bricks of our physical structure or cells are continuously destroyed in the course of our daily lives and we compensate for this loss by taking in food. Food, once digested, produces various forms of cells which counterbalance this physical deficiency. Likewise, the human body is constantly being eroded and altered. Old cells are destroyed and new ones take their place. This process continues daily until eventually total renovation of the body occurs, usually within a period of 10 years. To put it another way, Nothing whatsoever remains now of the body you possessed 10 years ago. Your present physique is an entirely new one. If all the parts of your body uh, severed from you over the last 10 years were to be gathered together, then another human being identical to yourself could be constructed. If you are 100 years old, then, then 10 yous could be formed which despite their exact similarity to you in appearance would be no more than inanimate lumps of flesh for you uh, do not dwell within them. 
for you do not dwell within them you have abandoned these old bodies and molded yourself into a new frame so the saga of construction and destruction is constantly being enacted within you without any evident change occurring that entity which you call yourself remains as it was if you had entered into a contract with someone 10 years ago you would continue to admit that you committed yourself in this manner although your previous frame is now non-existent neither the hands which signed the contract papers nor the tongue which testified to it are any longer attached to your body nevertheless you still exist and you acknowledge the fact that this 10 year old contract was your own and continue to abide by it this is that inward human being at work which far from altering with bodily transformation survives countless physical changes absolutely intact this proves that the word homo sapiens rather than being a, lab- a label attached to a certain physical form which is erased with its death is a separate entity which remains intact even after the diffusion of the body's composite parts the fact that the body alters whereas the soul does not is conclusive proof of the transitional nature of the body and the eternal nature of the soul some misguided people consider life and death to be the accumulation and subsequent diffusion of uh, multi- uh, multitudinous particles of matter this theory has been expounded by an ordo poet chakbast uh, in the following words what is life elements arranging themselves in order and death their diffusion this however is a statement which is not borne out by fact uh, if life were simply elements arranging themselves in order then it follows that it should survive only so long as this orderliness endured and it should conversely be possible for an expert scientist to create life by an accumulation of these elements obviously both these propositions are ludicrous we observe that it is not only those who have been torn limb from limb in some accident who die we observe that it's not only those who have been torn limb from limb in some accident who die in every condition and at every age people are passing away sometimes perfectly healthy human beings suffer sudden heart failure and no doctor can provide an explanation we may regard a corpse as an orderly elemental manifestation but the soul which inhabited it has departed all elements are arranged in the same order as they were a few minutes beforehand uh, but they are utterly lifeless this shows that the organization of elemental matter does not create life rather life is an entirely separate entity this is the end of part 1